Support for today's Heat Treat Radio episode is provided by Heat Treat Today's 40 Under 40 Class of 2021. Learn more at www.heattreattoday.com forward slash nominate. Welcome to Heat Treat Radio. I'm your host, Bethany Funk, editor of Heat Treat Radio. Today brings another 101 conversation to you with Doug Glenn, publisher of Heat Treat Radio, talking with Cliff Orcutt of American Hysostatic Presses Incorporated about hot isostatic pressing. We'll hear about the basics of hot isostatic pressing, or hipping, from the history to the development and best applications of it throughout the industry. Let's take a listen. So first off, Cliff, I want to just welcome you to Heat Tree Radio. So welcome. Thank you. And uh, if you don't mind, let's give our listeners just a brief background about you. Well, uh, it's been uh, 43 quick years in the ship industry. Uh, actually did start as, as a child. My father was one of the original people at Battelle, where it was patented in the 50s. Um, so I grew up under that. And right out of school, I went to work for his company after he and another gentleman left Battelle, Mike Conaway, and they formed Conaway Pressure Systems. And so... By the time I was 20, I had already installed 10 hip units around the world and helped design and build the mini hipper. And uh, I was involved in 1978 in moving the world's largest hip unit from Battelle to Crucible Steel in Pittsburgh, which is now ATI. Okay. Um, and then also in 1979-80, we installed the very large system for the uh, Babcock and Wilcox at the Naval Nuclear Fuels Division down in Lynchburg. And both of those units, 40 years later, are still running. So that's pretty yeah, good. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I'm also um, past president of the Advanced Materials Powder Association, part of MPIF. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was also a director of their Isostatic Pressing Association. I'm currently the chairman of the International Hip Committee, which we put on the triennial hip conference uh, every three years. And now, is that part of APMI? It's actually its own group. It was formed by um, all the people in HIP around the world, Europe and Japan and the United States back in 1983 or so. Okay. It, what's, the name of the, what's the name of the organization? It's called the International HIP Committee. Okay. And it's kind of a, a loose organization, which the only thing that we do is we put on this conference and we bring in speakers from around the world and promote HIP technology, basically. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, our last one was in Sydney, Australia in 2017, and we were supposed to have this year uh, in <laughs> October of 2020, and now it's pushed till September of 2021. Right. Where so we, where will that be? Uh, it's going to be at Columbus, Ohio, because that was the original founding. And it, every every other conference, we moved to the United States, Europe, or Japan. So, yeah. um, so it's coming back to the U.S., I'm in charge of it. We have some other good people on, on the board, including Mike Conaway, who was one of the original Battelle people. Okay. Uh, Victor Samaroff's on, on the board helping do the meeting with the programming and so forth. Yeah. Uh, people can visit www.hip2020.org okay. um, to see information on that. Okay, great. All right, so I got you a little distracted on that. Go ahead. Keep going with yeah. your background and whatnot. Um. Personally, in, the, in these 43 years, I've installed over 200 years hands-on, or 200 units, units hands Yeah, on. yeah, yeah. And uh, I've flown about 5 million miles, been to 38 countries. 
Uh, you name it, I've been there. Yeah. Some good ones and bad ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, at in in my early years, when my father started this company, they pulled about six people out of Battelle, and they were basically my teachers. So instead of going to educational school, I went to uh, hip school. Uh-huh. We had some of the top people, uh, Roger Penny, Hugh Haynes, Don Westner, Gary Felton, and another gentleman, Bob Tavner, all came out of there. And in uh, 1979, my father passed away, and his company then sold to ASEA, okay. who then became ABB, who then became ABB uh, Flow, and then they became Quintus Now. So, uh, okay, that, okay, I see. Mm -hmm. So they, that's how they have a location in Columbus as well. Um, a couple people, including Bob Tavner, left and formed International Pressure Service. Okay. And that was in 1983, and they hired me as operations manager. And we grew to be a force to be reckoned with, and uh, the Japanese then bought us. Uh -huh. <laughs> and at that time, um, Rajendra Prasad, or Reggie, we call him, um, he left and formed AIP, and uh, I said, hey, Reggie, let's have a two-person company again rather than two one-person yeah. companies. And, uh, yeah, yeah. So that, that was 1992, and so 28 years later, now we're forced to be reckoned with again. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Very good. Very good. Well, that's that's great. That's good background. So tell, tell us a little bit about AIP. American Isostatic Presses, like I say, we, we came out of – when the Japanese bought us, we had a lot of technology, a lot of good people. And then they hired a new CEO, and he decided he didn't want to continue building hip units. He wanted to do something else. Mm -hmm. And so Reggie formed AIP. I joined him, but we pulled five other people back from IPS. Mm -hmm. And so we sold our first big job in 1994 mm -hmm. to Horaeus uh, in Singapore, a multimillion-dollar job, and uh, kind of took off from there and just haven't looked back. And so we, we started on a shoestring, no venture capitalists, no dollars. And uh, oh. now we're, you know, now we have four buildings and locations around the globe. And, um, yeah. And how still, many, how many units do you think you guys have installed over the last, since 94, you said, right? So almost yeah, 30 as AIP, about 150. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and it, it's, it's snowballing. In the last five years, we've sold five big units. So, mm -hmm. you know, that up until that time, we were mainly mid and small. We had orders for some big ones, but unfortunately, we couldn't get export licenses for them. Uh, oh, okay. The technology that grew out of Battelle, it, it was based on nuclear fuel rods for mm -hmm. the submarines. Admiral Rickover wanted to extend the life of the sub. So, it was protected for quite some time, and then they also had missile nose cone technology is, is used for it. And that's right. kind of still what they're protecting it nowadays is missile nose cones. So we had some orders in the late 90s, early 2000s from China for large equipment, and we were denied. And then we were denied to India. Yeah. So, um, we kind of just got stuck with the smaller to mid-sized units. But here recently, it's uh, starting to expand. Things loosening up a little bit. So. Yeah. And so, so AIP today is selling not only North America, obviously, but you're pretty much selling around the world. Anywhere where it's legal to sell, you, you'll do it. Yeah, if we can get an export license, we'll, we'll put it right. in. Okay. And uh, some of the rules have relaxed a little bit, so we're, and some countries we're more friendly with now, so we can 
right 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 so let's let's talk for a second because i think a lot of our listeners are probably not going to be as familiar with uh hipping hot isostatic pressing as other more common heat let's call quote unquote heat treat operations you know carburizing hardening annealing that type of thing so take us back 101 class 101 what what is hipping we're just a high-tech blacksmith. That's all it is. <laughs> yeah, instead of hitting something with a hammer, we're using gas pressure to squeeze on it. Okay. So, so we heat it up hot, we put pressure on it, and we, we're basically densifying it, making it more dense, getting rid of imperfections in the metal. Um, a lot of what's done is castings. Uh, when you have a casting, the metal's hot, so it's expanded. When it cools, it cools from the outside in, so it freezes on the outside first, and then the center starts to shrink. It creates internal porosity. Most of that porosity is thermal shrinkage, which is a void. So you put it back in our heat treatment, and you apply pressure to it, and you get rid of the voids that are left. So you make the casting dense and uh, better grain structure, more homogeneous. Um, increases fatigue and properties strength. So mm-hmm. it's uh, that, that's the number one use of it right now. Second is probably powder metallurgy, where you take powder metals and you can blend powders and you can start with different grain sizes and different materials and you put them in a container because the gas would go through the container if you didn't have something around it. So you squeeze on the container and it densifies whatever's inside of it and um, you make a solid part. So a lot of uh, powder metallurgy billets, which are then used um, for extruding into other products or yeah. rolls and different things. We do a lot of pump bodies and valves uh, for deep sea work, um, extruder barrels. You can bond things, a whole lot of applications. Yeah. So give us a sense, for the again, for the layman, Cliff, if you don't mind, the two things that I understand with HIPIC are high temperature and high pressure. Okay. So give us a sense of high temperature. What does that mean? Is it hotter than a typical heat treat operation? And how about the pressures? What type of, you know, give us a sense of what the pressures are looking like. A lot of people are familiar with sintering. And that's where you just take the metal up and you center it and the grains merge together by melting and, and attractive forces. What we're doing is we're not taking it up to those high temperatures to where the part actually is molten or or melting. We're taking them up below that and applying pressure. Because of the pressure, we're, we're basically pressurized centering. We're adding force to make it center faster or better or at lower temperatures. So usually it's about 150 degrees C less than centering temperature. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it depends on the process of what we're trying to do with it. Um, right. Right. We, we can go up to typically most parts are done around 15,000, some parts 30,000. Here at AIP, we actually have test units up to 60,000 PSI, and we've actually built 100,000 PSI hip units. Yeah. Um, so you're above the yield strength of some of the metals you're even squeezing. Yeah. So, and then we also, most the majority again in, in like castings. Titanium's around 970, steel's around 1225, um, but we go up to 2200C for some things, even higher for like hafnium carbide with people pushing it to 2300. Um, so it's pretty hot, a lot of pressure. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, high temperature and high pressure costs money, so that's 
Yes, they do. Yeah. You, you want to use the lowest pressure and the lowest temperature you can get by with, but sometimes you can't. So. Right, right. And it's harder, I, I would imagine. I mean, the way I've always heard it said that, you know, the hot, the hotter it is, the more difficult it is to keep those, keep that, let's say that cylinder, the container that you're talking about. I mean, it becomes, if it becomes hotter, it's harder to keep it together. So I would guess you're right. I mean, when you've got higher temperatures, it's things tend to blow apart easier. Uh, not so much. Um, not the temperature is so contained in, in the middle of, of the pressure vessel, so you've got plenty right. of insulation around it, and you can keep your container cool. Gotcha. Um, the, the goal there is, in a HIP unit, because it's an expensive piece of item, you want to maximize your work zone. So that's where you have to have good engineering to make sure you, you do keep the container cool. Yeah, um, yeah. Are, are, most of, are most of those units uh, water-cooled? Water-cooled jackets, or are they cold wall? Uh, they're almost all are hot wall. All hot wall, okay. Um, but some of them are cooled internally, some of them are cooled externally. Um, you still have loss to the, the metal, whether it's internal or external cool, but uh, right. internal gives you faster cooling than the external. Um, right. The big advantage of hipping is, uh, like with some materials like titanium, you can eliminate a lot of machining. And so making chips that you can't really reuse real easy, uh, yeah. it, it makes a lot of economic sense because titanium is a very high melting temperature, so you can't take those chips and melt them cheaply. Right. Aluminum, you can. So aluminum, a lot of aluminum people don't can't afford to hit it because you can just recast it. Right. So that, that's one of the advantages there. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Hip is an expensive process. I'd point that out. Um, the equipment's expensive, and it uses argon gas. You know, swinging a hammer is cheap, but using gas pressure, it's so compressible that you have to put a lot in. Uh, you can reclaim some, but uh, the cost is still high. So you're talking medical, uh, aerospace, and military, basically. We always thought, you know, 40 years ago, I thought every car would have hip pistons, and, and it's just yeah. not, it's not going to happen. They can't afford it. Um, I do see Edelbrock and TrickFlow both have hipped race heads, though, aluminum okay. race heads. So, so if you get into where you have the economy of, of doing things, something like that, you, you can you can apply it because you're definitely going to get a better product. It's just price versus performance. Right, right, right. So as far as, as, far as why people want to do the hipping, uh, I guess it's primarily it's a it's a an elimination of let's say defects or inclusions or whatever in either cast parts or or powder metal parts uh you're increasing fatigue strength and things of that sort any other any other major reasons why people want to want to hip well there are some things you can't make other ways in other words it's like water and oil you can't mix them very well and some metals, you can't melt them and just make a molten bucket and pour it. So right. in HIP, since you're starting with powders that are solids, you can blend things like uh, graphite powder and steel. You couldn't blend them very well in a, a molten state. But in, in here, you can, and you can squeeze it to a solid. You can get interlocking and bonding and diffusion bonding of materials that you couldn't mm. otherwise. And uh, so you can make things you couldn't make any other way. Also, you can, again, as I say, you can eliminate um, machining 
say, for instance, you're making a titanium fitting that has a lot of holes on the inside and so forth. Yeah. It, it might even be curved and really hard to drill, something like that. But you can lay it up and do powder metallurgy around it and make, make shapes that you couldn't make otherwise. Right. Um, a lot of parts are pressed and centered, say, gears, for instance, for transmissions. Something like that's real easy because it's, it's a small disc. It's not very long. But if you're trying to make a real long part that's a, a strange shape, you can't just press and center. So yeah. you, you can do it from, from hipping. You can can do big shapes that you couldn't get enough force on or you can't fit into a press die. Right. Um, it, it opens up a lot of options. A missile nose cone, for instance, there's just almost no way to press and center a, a cone. But uh, with tipping, you can make that shape. You can make it very uniform. Um, it just There's no other way to really do it. Yeah, and and I think that is one of the benefits with of hipping, from what I understand, is it's it's absolutely equal pressure on all parts when you when you increase the pressure. So it's not like you're only pushing on one part or what we like with a forge press or something like that. Equal pressure all around. Yep, it gives you uniform density throughout the part, which is very right. critical. Right. Um, Okay, good. So, so hipping primarily used on on castings, powder metal, things of that sort, uh, helps us get a, a very uh, clean part, if you will, to eliminate inclusions or whatever. Any 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 porosity, minimize the porosity, I guess. Um, so that sounds good. So, it, and I, you may have mentioned this before, but the actual history of hipping, it, it started at Battelle. Started at Battelle. I think it was 55 or 56. Okay. Uh, again, for the nuclear fuel rods, for cladding of, of the uh, fuel rod. And uh, four people were involved in the patent. Two of them, Ed, Ed Hodge and uh, Stanford Brocky. I worked for both of them over my years. Okay. And uh, so it, it grew out of Battelle. And then in 1975 is when my father and Mike Conway left and formed Conway Pressure Systems. Gotcha. And, so that was kind of like the beginning of the commercialization of it. Uh, there were some other companies like Autoclave Engineers were building high-pressure equipment, but they really weren't offering packaged hip units. Right. So um, Conway Pressure, or CPSI, we called it, that was really the origination of commercial hips as we know it. Right, right, okay. And then you hit on this a little bit, Cliff, but I want to make sure we, we're clear on it. So the, you, you mentioned the industries that are using it, and and but let's just review that real quickly, and maybe if, if you can give any example of parts. I mean, you said it's gotta, they've got to be higher value parts because the process is expensive. So we're looking at aerospace, medical, that type of thing. What primarily, in the at least in those two industries and other industries, if you want to list, what kind of parts are being run? Um, a lot of extruder barrels, um, what happens is you can use a solid steel um, chunk of metal for the barrel portion, but then you can hip or diffusion bond powders on the inside of that barrel that might be very expensive that you couldn't just – if you're doing something like a, a crane or something where the, the teeth are outside, you can weld on. A lot of times they'll weld on hard, brittle materials that, that help you dig things with a digger. But on a yeah. computer barrel, it's on the inside. It's internal. It's very hard to coat down on the inside. So we can actually bond those powders to the inside of extruder barrels. Another big, ap big application is sputtering targets. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with sputtering targets, but they're basically um, 
sacrificial material that you plate onto other materials. So the target is just something that's being hit with electron beam inside a vacuum furnace. It creates a vapor, and by charging the different particles, you can attract them and plate things out. So all of your mirrored windows, all of your hard drives, all of your CDs and DVDs, when you see that mirrored finish on there, that's a sputtered coating. Okay. And those coatings come from these things we call targets. And what happens is if you're, if you're say, doing a chromium target, again, if you try to molten cast it, if you had a, a, a bath or a, or a melt of chromium, it would get oxides in it and yeah, right. terrible. So, But you can make very pure powders. That's one of the good things about hipping is they can make very pure powders by blowing argon through a stream, and it makes nice pure powder. So then we can put it in and we can squeeze it into a solid billet and make a target, which then can be evaporated in the vacuum chamber for coating. So lots and lots of sputtering targets. Um, we're seeing a lot of application now in ceramics. So we see oh. pump plungers, um, ceramic bearings. We Here at AIP, we do a lot of military work for armor, boron carbide, spinel, Things that are really hard, ceramics, and you want them perfect because if they have a defect in it, you know, that's a starting point for a crack. Right, right. A lot of brakes for jets and fighter jets. We, we have a process inside the hip that we call carbon-carbon impregnation. And so it, we take pressure and we push the carbon into the, the 3D woven um, graphite fibers. Uh, okay. And, uh, make uh, brakes and nose cones and so forth. Other materials like beryllium, it's very hard to make beryllium and machine it because it's kind of dangerous and so forth. So, again, they take powders and they hip the beryllium to make things like space mirrors and other uh, jet parts. Um, now we've gone into more things like uh, teeth and braces are being done with ceramics. Huh. New transparent braces made out of alumina and different materials and zirconia caps for your teeth. Uh, again, if you don't hip them and they've got a defect in it, it'll be like a plate when you drop it. But if you get rid of that defect, now you've got something harder than steel. Right. So, um, and and on the other end, we're doing jewelry such as gold and platinum rings. Um, and the benefit there is if you don't have porosity, it's, if you had porosity, it's like trying to sand a sponge and you can never find a nice, perfect uh, surface. But if you got rid of that and the sponge is now hard, and yeah. you polish it, you're not taking off any material, so it's, it's very good. Um, we're seeing things, hasn't really happened too much, but we're seeing rumblings on phone cases. Um, a lot of those have been metal in the past, but now they want to do the magnetic charging, and right. it doesn't work real well. So they're looking It's got to be glass of some sort, I guess, right? Yeah, we're, we're competing with Gorilla Glass, um, but yeah. You know, some companies are looking at transferring that to Zirconia. Um, the iPhone watch, or the iWatch, they were making it in Zirconia. And that's one of the applications and things like that. Uh, ceramic rings, all of these things are, are being hipped. Ceramic knives, ceramic scissors, hmm. uh, they're all being hipped. Yeah, interesting, interesting. We're also, uh, on the diffusion front, you know, like the backing plates for the fusion reactor like ITER, um, they can bond copper to tungsten and different things so that they can um, 
you couldn't really weld them because you try to weld tungsten, you know, it gets real brittle and wants to crack, but you can diffuse right. bond materials and you can do things you couldn't do otherwise. Okay. All right, good. Now, those are great examples. I think that's that gives folks enough. I mean, is there, are there any other examples that, that jump to your mind that you think people ought to know about, or is that a pretty good example? Um, you know, the big one right now is 3D um, printing. Oh, yes, yes. We're uh-huh. seeing a lot of uh, interest in 3D body parts, uh, titanium, you know, stents and spines and implants for teeth and screws and um just about anything you can print 3D, they're trying to print. Well, the problem with 3D is it's not perfect yet. Um, right. Maybe in 10 years it'll be perfect, but they're, they're making imperfect parts when they print them. But if you put it in the hip and squeeze on it, now you've got a, pretty much a perfect dense part that's bonded better, stronger, improved the right. properties. Right. So it, it also allows you to print faster. So maybe you'll want to print an imperfect part, but you can yeah. do it twice as fast. Yeah. So you increase the range between the particles and speed up your process. And again, price versus performance. You look at, you know, sure. what what the benefit of the two two ways are. Right. So I've got a question. This is kind of backing up, but I want to I want to ask you about this. In heat treating, a lot of times after heating, you have to worry about dimensional change. So of of the part, right? So I'm thinking to myself, okay, you've got a cast part with, you know, some let's say porosity, some innate porosity. You put it in a hipping unit. Do you do you have to compensate, or do you have to be careful about dimensional change? Most notably, I would think with pressure shrinkage of the part. Very little, because it's isostatic, and and we're talking about micro, macro, you know, small porosity. So this, yeah, okay. it's not, you know, if if you had a one inch hole in the center and you were squeezing that out, you might see <laughs> it on the, the surface. Yeah. We're talking about you know microscopic particle sizes. Okay. So, Uh, it's really not much now in the powder metallurgy we say it's isostatic but then you do have some of the stresses in the container that you put around it so you might see some distortion at the corners where you've welded a container and so forth but there's good software out there's good programming and things and uh, a lot of empirical data people can pretty much design to shape within a couple millimeters so Right, right. Okay. All right, that's fine. And uh, you did mention this again earlier. I'm just backing up a little bit. So the pre- the gas that's used is predominantly argon because of its it's a heavy gas, right? The reason we use argon is the furnaces we use um, can't run in air or oxygen. Right. Um, so we have a choice of nitrogen, basically, or argon are the two commercial-grade gases. Right. Nitrogen also embrittles materials like molybdenum. So yes, yes. It, it tear, tears up our furnaces. So argon is the preferred choice. It also yeah. it has poor thermal conductivity, which is good for the insulating portion of the HIP unit. Yeah. Um, and when you get it dense enough, then it does conduct good enough that it works for the part. So gotcha. it's, it's the all-around cleanest, best gas, but it's, it's an expensive gas. We yeah. use nitrogen on some things. A lot of ceramics like silicon nitride will use uh, nitrogen right. for different reasons. Um, one of the biggest issues right now is we see a lot of interest in oxide ceramics. And I've got many customers that want us to build a real high temperature oxygen furnace. And we're real close to issuing that. Um, what it will allow is to actually center in the hip unit at high temperatures under partial oxygen, which hasn't been done yet. Okay, that's something to watch there. Call us when that's ready. We'll, yep. we'll talk again, <laughs> for sure. 
When we return, Cliff will share a little more about the specialties of American Isostatic Press's incorporated sister companies, as well as talking about how hipping can be most useful to commercial and in-house heat treaters alike. But let me take a moment to remind you about the Heat Treat Today 40 Under 40 nominations. They're open now for the class of 2021. Yes, these nominations are open for the summer, only for less than a one month away. You're going to want to recognize the accomplishments and the value of rising young leaders in the heat treat industry within this 40 under 40 class of 2021 recognition. You can share with the heat treat community their dedicated contributions to the industry, as well as their other accomplishments. Over this past year, we've seen Heat Treat Today 40 under 40 winners lead their companies through an unpredictable economy and navigate challenges caused by COVID-19. 40 under 40 leaders have also aided their companies in applying innovative technologies and shifting their services to fit new industries. What can you say in five minutes about a young professional in your circle? A client? A manager? A coworker? An employee? Tell us at www.heattreattoday.com forward slash nominate. Again, that takes less than five minutes just to share why you appreciate someone in your circle at www.heatreattoday.com forward slash nominate. Now, let's return to Cliff and Doug. All right, so let's change gears just a little bit. You actually have two sister companies. Yep. So I want to I wanna talk, ask you a question. You can kind of incorporate information about those sister companies with this. I want to ask you two questions. One, why would a company want to outsource a hipping process and on the flip side of that why would a company want to purchase their own hipping equipment and do it in-house maybe you can address both of those because you're seeing you you've got experience on both sides of those based on your sister companies well the, the outsourcing is real easy if you only got one part to hip you're not going to buy a hippie <laughs> so yes it's yeah. quantity versus you know do you, can you support the operation of a hip unit and, and, and again, do it profitably. You have to be able to do everything profitably or you're not going to do anything. Right. So um, you got to look at the capital equipment costs and the space. Maybe you don't have space in your building or you don't want to build a new building. Or, or maybe you just don't have the people that right. have the, the knowledge in hipping and you don't want to hire and, and train a maintenance crew and so forth. So even some big companies like Pratt & Whitney and Wyman Gordon both owned massive hip units at one time. And they decided it was cheaper to sell the hip unit, the body coat, and how met, and then outsource it. So yeah, yeah. Um, but then sometimes economics maybe play in there. But then sometimes maybe you want to have in-house um, sourcing because maybe your part's so heavy you can't afford to ship it. So then you look at that and you say you might want to have your own hip for that reason, or you've got so many parts you you just can't afford to box them all, ship them out, and bring them back. Um, so that there's there's reasons why you'd want to own your own hip unit. Right, right. So um, tell you, us a little bit about the because you've got sister companies that do the service, right? I mean, AIP, uh, American Isostatic Presses, the company that you're with specifically, they build the units, but you've got a sister company that actually does the services. Tell us about them just a little bit. Well, when we started out, we were just going to build hip units, and we were selling to a lot of the toll companies, um, and we still do, but... Around 2004, after the economic downturn of 2001, we uh, we decided we would get into building our own pressure vessels, and we hired an engineer, Dan Taylor from Hydropack, and started building pressure vessels because we thought we could do it better. And so that's one of the things that drives us. So then we were looking at toll, 
And a lot of people would come to us and say, you know, we're just not happy with turnaround or, or other things. Can, can you guys help us toll hip? And, and so we kind of got drug into it. And um, we didn't, again, want to step on our competitor or not our competitors, but our, our customers, like Body Code and so forth. We didn't want to step on anybody's toes. So we, we came out with a different name yeah. <laughs> and kind of just sort of hid behind that a little bit. And, uh, and didn't really even market it for a long time. But then again, we keep getting dragged in. And so we opened another plant. And then now this last year, we opened another one. So um, um, it, it, it's, I've never seen a, a toll hip company go out of business yet or lose money. So yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. the better business. The equipment, equipment building's up and down. It, it's, you know, yeah. you're riding the waves. So it helped us flatten the curve a little bit. COVID here, but uh, yeah, yeah, different a different type of curve, not a curve. curve. <laughs> um, the cash flow curve it, it flattened it out and helped us a lot. Our competitors weren't doing it; they still aren't really doing it like we're doing it. Right. Um, the original name was Isostatic Pressing Services (IPS). Then, when we did um, our plant in Oregon, we called it ITS, so Isostatic Toll Services. Okay. Um, and just the family wanted to have different, you know, names and different people involved. And there's different investors. Um, it's AIP basically, but there's other family members in the Persaud family. So um, right. it's uh, and then in uh, Spain, the big one we opened last year in Spain, it it kept the ITS name, but uh, there's five players in that one, so we're we're one of the players. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So you've got toll services. Or the or the let's say the sister companies have toll services. I know one in Oregon, one in Ohio, Mississippi, Mississippi, and then one in Spain. The Ohio one is under the AIP name. Okay. Basically, what we do in Ohio is we do more research. Um, Okay. We again are expanding here in Columbus. We're getting ready to build again, um, and we'll start heading a little more into the production toll. Um, we've got a couple customers that are, again, pulling us that way. But uh, right now, Columbus is mainly, we, we have five hip units up to about uh, 500 millimeters in diameter. Most of it is high temperature. In Columbus, we concentrate on, you know, 2,000 C. Okay. Uh, all of our other plants are doing production work, which is medical implants and um, turbine-type parts, and those are all 1225 C, roughly. So. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. All right, so let's talk as we're wrapping up here, uh, Cliff. Let's talk about some of the, ed, ed, the the more latest advances, some of the newer things that that are coming onto the scene. You mentioned one I know, and that was the oxygen o- oxide. You had a you had the appropriate name for it, the ceramic oxides or whatever. Yep. Uh, so let's talk about that if you'd like a little bit more. And then also, are there any other uh, advances in in the hipping world that we should know about? You know, I, I've been in it from almost day one, and it hasn't changed much. I mean, if you look at a hip from 40 years ago and today, they look the same. We still use the same valves and fittings. The big things that have changed is computer control. Uh, AIP was one of the very first. I won't say the first because, again, back at Battelle in 73, they had a Foxborough PDP that was in the whole room and had tape reels in it. And, uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> I remember that seeing it run a hippie that you type in stop start. You know. Yeah, yeah. It was like a movie, but uh, that's funny. That's so funny. Around ninety three, ninety four, AIP, we branched into computer control pretty hard, and we've kind of led since then. And it, it allows us to do a lot of things. Number one is we can run it remotely. So Mississippi, we actually run our plant from Columbus. Oh, they load it, and we take take it over here. Our guys here in Columbus, they run our units all night by staying at home and, and watching them. So um, computers really help us there. Service, you know, we were able to get on the computer and look at a uh, piece of gear in Singapore and fix it, you know. So right. that, that's the thing that's really helped us. Um, where We're advancing things as in furnace technology for high temperatures, getting these furnaces to last longer, making them more reliable. That, that's kind of one of the keys because, again, with costs and ec- economics of HIP is you want, you know, not to have to be repairing it and replacing things all the time. So that's what we concentrate on. We don't try to push the edge. I think some of our competitors really try to push the edge and um, do things that, you know, may or may not be beneficial or even needed, but they're, they're just trying to, push the edge of things and, and we're not we're, we're trying to hit the everyday guy and make him profitable get parts in parts out right um as far as the oxygen that's because ceramics you know it's been coming for a long time and it's still coming but uh, it's just never really taken off yet but sooner or later it has to because they're they're higher temperature stronger materials than steels it's just we're we are competing against forgings. We're competing against casting companies. So that that's kind of the whole thing with all the hip companies. There's only basically four main players in the world. We're all kind of small. We all kind of try to work together as much as we can. And we all make good equipment to try to advance hipping technology. Right. More, than, more than beating up on each other, we try to beat up on the forging companies and the casting companies. <laughs> we want to take their business. So Yeah. The research here, a lot of what we are doing is trying to work on the higher temperatures, higher pressures. Um, if you can go to higher pressure, you can drop the temperature, which then minimizes grain growth. So in many materials that you know improves either clarity of the material, if it's a transparent ceramic, or it can improve the strength of a steel because you have better interlocking between smaller particles. Um, so we're, we're trying to do a lot more in high pressure, high temperature than some of the other companies. A lot of companies are just in the metals only, you know, titanium right. captains. They really focus on that. We're doing some really odd things here. I mean, we do stuff that nobody else wants to fool with. So, Yeah, yeah. And you have fun while you do it. So I'm, I'm curious, just for my own purposes, the, the average hip unit, first off, I, I envision these things as kind of like bell furnaces. As a cylinder is that true and how big is a let's just say if it's possible an average hip unit what what's the work zone dimensions let's say well they start with our smallest one's about the size of a desk and it has a work zone of about three inches by four inches okay uh, we can build a little bit smaller but economies wise we just build that one small model that's kind of the smallest anybody uses yeah it's yep. kind of the size you need for a tensile bar. So, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. a lot of the universities, just about every university and lab has an AIP small unit. Okay. Um, and then they can go up to massive units. The large one in Japan that Quintus built is a 82 inch hot zone. So that's okay. a big, big diameter. And they're talking about 
a hundred inch or a hundred and ten inch hot zone. Um, that's that's diameter. What's that's, was the how how tall was it? Um, three meters. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, that's some people. Some people are looking at four meters uh, or even yep. longer. Um, I've been told that the army said if you could put a whole tank in one, they'd do it. <laughs> so, oh, no kidding. No, oh, wow. Uh. But one of the drivers there is uh, turbine blades. As the blades get bigger, like on jet engines, um, your your turbo fan is the outer blades and so forth. Those big shrouds and so forth. As they get bigger, gas economy gets better. So they would like to build massive engines, and they'd like some of those parts hipped. Okay. So they want really really big hip units and so that there's some drivers out there the other one is in uh, nuclear reactors for small modular nuclear power they'd like to replace some forgings and they, they could do it with powder metallurgy um, lids and so forth and those yeah. need you know a three meter diameter hip unit okay. so there's some drivers on the big one but but the majority of work is in the all one meter range that's that's about okay the majority okay. What was the most interesting hip installation you ever had? Meaning either it was in an interesting place or it was running interesting parts or you had an interesting experience during the install and or operation. Well, I could talk days on stories. I mean, (laughs) uh, some of the interesting ones were back in the old days when they used to blindfold me and and. I'd have, you know, they take me into places and everything's covered up and they only, you know, I don't even know where I'm going. And then they yeah. let me work on the equipment. Um, going to Saudi Arabia is always interesting, too. Um, yeah. First few trips to India, that was uh, very trying. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, lots of places. It was trying. Why was it trying? Why was it trying? Just curious. Well, in the U.S., you can get a 300-ton crane to lift a big piece of equipment. But in yeah. India, you know, the truck shows up with the pressure vessel on it, and three of the tires are already flat. Oh, wow, <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's crazy. And trying to drive, you know, a semi-truck. In, in the U.S., what we'd have to do is we'd have to have, you know, 48 wheels, and uh, they'd have to get road permits and so forth. And there, all they got to do is get somebody to get the cows out of the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. And so... And the same way, you know, our first unit we put in China was back in the early 90s. And uh, that that was very interesting because back then they were a little bit behind, too. Now everything's they're, they're right up there. But, uh, yeah. you know, finding parts or, or moving things. I, I've seen guys, you know, six guys on a, on a rope trying to lift things. That just nowadays you just pick it up with a forklift. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's been some some trying stuff (laughs) yeah yeah interesting interesting real real good well cliff thank you very much for the uh for the for the primer to help us all get up and running let's talk about let's just then briefly talk about how people can get in touch with you what what information are you comfortable giving out they can find us at www.aiphip.com or aiphip.com okay um and there's links on there to our IPS. If you go under the links, there's some uh, IPS and ITS links there. Okay. Um, Got your toll service companies. Your toll service companies. companies. Um, okay. Or they can find those online too at isostaticpressingservices.com, which is a big word. So that's why I tell them just go to the link. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, they can call us at 614 497 3148. 
Cliff, thank you very much for spending your time with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you that you're promoting our industry and heat treating in general and uh, proud to be helping you out. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks. Appreciate that. We hope you enjoyed today's Heat Treat Radio episode with Cliff Orcutt on Hipping 101. Check out more technical episodes from Heat Treat Radio at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or simply at www.heattreattoday.com forward slash radio. To learn more about today's guest, go to www.aiphip.com. That's aiphip.com. Or for towing services, www.hysostaticpressingservices.com. Feel free to call them at 614-497-3148 or even send an email to me and I'll put you in touch. My email is bethany at heattreattoday.com. We're always interested in new Heat Treat Radio topics. Send an email to me with something you find interesting and we can talk about a future Heat Treat Radio episode. Or if you'd like to sponsor a future episode, let me know and we'll be in touch. Again, my email is bethany at heattreattoday.com. HeatTreatToday.com features news and technical content that you won't want to miss. Stop by the Heat Treat TV, for instance, to watch a series of educational and informative videos from around the industry. Or search by process, equipment, or industry for all your heat treating questions and find an article that you like. Heat Treat Radio would like to thank the Heat Treat Today 40 Under 40 Award for sponsoring this episode. This and every other episode of Heat Treat Radio is the sole property of Heat Treat Today and may not be reproduced in part or in whole without advanced written permission from Heat Treat Today. Audio producer Jonathan Lloyd created and mixed most of the music that you heard today. Check out his professional work at www.jonathanlloydmusic.com. Thank you, Jonathan. And I'm your host, Bethany Funk. Thank you for listening. <laughs>